RealityCheckLive.org. Carrie Harrison here with you. This is Reality Check Live Special Report. We get our microphones out here and there where it actually matters. Now it's the road to the White House 2020. We're wondering what the Republicans will do, what sort of candidate they will bring given uh, Donald Trump and an internal reaction to that presidency, and maybe they're going to seek something slightly different. On the other hand, the Democrats have yet to reveal somebody very smoking hot for that base. Uh, so many people are wondering, will Bernie Sanders reemerge? Well, meanwhile, a, a, a very important annual gathering happened in New Hampshire, just happened, where a candidate, Jason Kander, the founder of Let America Vote, a millennial, the first millennial ever, Jewish millennial, by the way, ever to stand up and potentially throw his hat in the ring. This is what's called the sniff test to see how well he's received. Take a listen to this entire speech and see if it doesn't light the candle of possibilities for many things that you probably already believe in. And it doesn't matter if you're blue, red, or purple politically. This is what common sense sounds like. And I just want to point out the millennial side of it. When you're a millennial, you're stuck here on the planet for 70 more years. So melting glaciers, inhospitable air and water, not a joke. It's all very real, including medicine and all the rest of it. So listen to what this guy says with an open mind and see what you think. Reality Check Live. New Hampshire Democrats, please pick up those thunder sticks and give a good New Hampshire welcome to President of Let America Vote, Jason Kander. Thank you. That is awesome. I really appreciate it. Uh, I actually want to start by thanking uh, our wait staff tonight, who's working so hard. Can we give them a round of applause? I also want to definitely thank all of you for the invitation, particularly Chairman Buckley. Uh, I have had the opportunity over the last year to work with the chairman quite a bit. And I got to tell you, you probably already know this, but, you know, here in New Hampshire, obviously, he's such a force, such an advocate for the party. But that's also true across the country. So I know how much you appreciate him. But can you start by just showing him real quick? And uh, it is great to be in the same room with three quarters of your congressional delegation, uh, Senators Shaheen and Hassan and uh, Congresswoman Custer. I want to, again, be a speaker who asks for a round of applause for them. (laughs) Also, I sort of have like a delegation of my own here. Um, I have several friends up here who I hope you get to meet, but I'm going to introduce them again real quick. Um, You know, Mayor Sly James, the mayor of, of my town, Kansas City, came up here. Stephen Weber, the chairman of the Missouri Democratic Party, is here. Jill Shoup, a state senator from St. Louis, is here. And Tashara Jones, the treasurer of the city of St. Louis. So, 
as well as several of my other friends. I hope you get a chance to meet them all. I am most excited that my wife, Diana, and my son, True, are here. True's waving. Uh, True is, is four and a half. The half is crucially important, you should know. So if you get an opportunity to speak to True, just a, a little piece of advice, bring up the half. Like you will ingratiate yourself immediately. So, um, and like any four and a half year old, True has a lot of questions. And a few months ago, Diana and True were driving along in the car, they were in Kansas City, and True asked his mom, he said, Mommy, is Barack Obama still president? I know, right? Like, we were not prepared to have the talk with him yet. But so she kind of had to do it on the fly. So she said, nobody, there's a new president now. His name is Donald Trump. And True asked, he said, is he doing a good job? And she said, no, he's not doing a good job. And then True's a very sweet little boy. So he thought about that for a moment. And then he asked, he said, have you and daddy told him? My wife was able to very honestly tell our son, don't worry, buddy, your daddy tells him nearly every day. <laughs> and, and I will get to a little bit of that in a few minutes, but, but first, there's two things that I want to do tonight, other than completely change your lives by offering you a sample of Kansas City barbecue sauce, which is on your table. Yeah, you're quite welcome. Now, there's two things that I want to do. First is, I want to make sure that I give you hope for the future of this party and of this country. And second, I want to tell you why it is that I decided to bring Let America Vote to New Hampshire. And to do that, I have to start by telling you about a problem that I have seen in our politics. And it is this. It is that we have far too many people in Washington for whom the toughest thing that they have ever been through in their lives voluntarily is the campaign that got them there in the first place. And that is why so many of them lack the courage to stand up for their country in the way that we know that they need to. And I, when I think about this, I think back to my first days in Afghanistan when I was deployed. I went over there thinking that I was pretty tough. You go through a lot of training, and I was pretty convinced that I was G.I. Joe in the flesh, right? And I'm there in my, in my battle rattle, my body armor, I got my pistol on my hip, and I'm, I thought I was quite ready for the first convoy that I was going to go on, to go outside the wire for the first time, go to the camp where I was going to be stationed. So in my mind, what I'm picturing is what you've seen on TV, which is big old armored Humvees, like a mean-looking dude up on top with a machine gun. That is not what pulled up for my first convoy. Does anybody here know what a Mitsubishi Pajero is? No? Well, it's basically an unarmored civilian mid-sized SUV. It's like a Ford Escape. So when I realized that's what I was going on for my first convoy, I suddenly did not feel at all tough. Like I felt a country mile or two away from tough. It was a long way away. And as we start to roll out the front gate, I start to get pretty scared. And then as we get underway, like my physical fear was joined by a social fear because I started to worry that as I was getting nauseous that I might throw up on all my new coworkers on like one of my first days in Afghanistan and I thought that might earn me a nickname and be bad and I was worried about it. But we got safely where we were going and all my food stayed in my stomach, which was great. And if you fast forward to a few months later, I'm standing in the same spot, but now I'm the convoy commander. So the Pajeros are behind me and I'm given a convoy brief. I'm explaining to folks, you know, what to do if we're attacked, who's in charge, if I get killed, that kind of thing. And I see this kid standing right out in front of me and he's turning green. And I know exactly what's going through his mind because I'd been there a few months earlier. So I kind of watch him to see what he's going to do. 
And he winds up getting into the vehicle right behind me, which is the only reason I remember this story, because I remember thinking, I hope this kid doesn't throw up on me. That was all I could think. I tell you that story to tell you that, look, you know, he was scared in that moment. I had been scared before, but we made the decision to get in the Pajeros. He looked at that moment and he said, this is scary, but I know that doing the job is more important than it is scary. And we need more of that courage in our politics right now. I firmly believe that we need more of that courage in our politics. And I, thank you. And I know so many veterans who have done so much more, so much more for the country than me. And whenever somebody uses the term political courage, I can't help but imagine what it would be like to try and convince some of them what it would mean, like the idea that it's really politics that takes courage. And any time I imagine doing that, I never am able to imagine actually convincing them of it. You know, for me, when I was in that back seat of that Pajero, that unarmored SUV in Afghanistan, that was the first time in my life that I'd ever been on the receiving end of bad decisions by politicians that negatively affected my life. I grew up comfortably. There was no politician that was able to make a decision that would take food off of my family's table. Mine is not a hard luck story. You know, mine is a story of somebody who has had the privilege of living outside the wake of politics all the way into my mid-20s. So I'm very aware, as all of you are, that there are so many Americans for whom their earliest memories are that emotion of feeling let down by the people in charge who were supposed to look out for them. And they are the reason that I am in public service, not to follow public opinion polls, but to change them. Voters reward courage. I have learned this. I know this for a fact. I won in a red state with my F rating from the NRA, with my endorsement from Planned Parenthood, and I was proud of both. And I did it given the fact that they've been attacking me for being for single payer since 2009, before it was cool, by the way. As a Democrat, I believe that our approach is the best thing for every American family, for every voter. I don't think that we're the best for like a few people or for certain people. I think that what we want to do is going to be the best thing no matter who you are, whether you're black or white, whether you're a man or a woman, gay or straight, whether you're from the city or the country, rich or poor. I believe that what we as Democrats want to do is going to do the most good for you and your family. And I'm betting you agree with me. then we should never make the mistake of making our, we should always make our argument enthusiastically and loudly. We've tried it the no courage way. For seven years, our party hid from Obamacare, failed to defend, refused to defend a law that involved a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress making health care available to millions of people, saving lives. What did the other side do? They spent millions of dollars trashing it. We spent just about nothing defending it. And then we were shocked and surprised when it became unpopular. And then, in the beginning of 2017, when our backs were against the wall, we all linked arms, and we went out and we made our case for it. We told people why we were for it. It turned out when they knew what it was all about, they liked it. And they didn't want Republicans taking away their health care. We should learn from this. We should learn that when we go out and we tell people exactly what we believe, when we tell them that we believe that health care should be a right in this country, they will respond. And that is why all across this state and all across this country, we are winning special elections right now on health care because we're saying what we really believe. 
And now we've got to have the courage to confront the fact that the civil rights battles of the past are back, that there are folks who want to take away our rights like the right to vote, and that we have to stand up to it as a party. We haven't always done it in the past, and we've got to do a better job of it in the future. And that is, that is why I started Let America Vote over a year ago, with the mission of creating political consequences for politicians who perpetrate voter suppression. Because I believe that it is time that politicians who make it harder to vote find it a whole lot harder to get reelected. And New Hampshire is ground zero for this fight in 2018, folks. We have to show the country that voter suppression ain't going to fly here or anywhere else in America. I volunteered to serve in the Army because I wanted to protect the rights and the freedoms that our nation has to offer. And I'll be damned if I'm going to come home and watch Chris Sununu and Donald Trump try and take those rights away. fight. I chose this fight because the Republicans have decided to make this the fight to end all fights. They've decided that if they can change the electorate for good, then they don't have to convince anybody that their ideas are good. That's what they've decided. They've decided that the ideas that they have that they know hurt people, they're just going to make sure that those folks can never vote them out of office, that they're going to eliminate them from democracy. Time and time again in this country, the courts have weighed in and said that laws like this all around the country, that they marginalize minority voters, that they disproportionately impact minority voters. Just so we're all on the same page, let's be real clear about what that means. That is a churched up court way of saying that these laws are racist. That's what they're saying. It is. That may not be polite. It may make folks uncomfortable, but it's what is the truth, and we ought to say so. And I wish that this was all just a history lesson. It should just be a history lesson, but it's not. It's happening right now in America. Right now, white supremacists and the KKK are literally on the march, displaying for everybody their horrific views that they once thought that they had to hide. Why? Because they are emboldened by a president who says that they are very fine people. Well, look, call me crazy, but I believe that we deserve to have a commander-in-chief who at least has the courage to stand up to the KKK and Nazis. Just a minimum bar to jump over. Just sort of hop on over it. Like a real low bar. It ain't a high bar. If we allow Donald Trump... If we allow Donald Trump to deny students and minorities and working folks in this country their voice at the ballot box, then this country is going to go back in time. And that is what the Republicans want. They want to take us back. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to let that happen. I ain't going back. We're not going back. So starting right now, let's send a message to the vote-suppressing politicians across New Hampshire and the rest of the country. If you want to attack our democracy, you got to go through us. And if you want to take away, come after the right to vote, well, then we're going to come for your job. So I'm looking 
looking forward to, to being back often to working side by side with the folks in this room to make sure that we elect Democrats up and down the ballot in this state. We started all the way back in May when we uh, worked to help elect uh, Representative Damaris and then and were involved in, in Senator Kavanaugh's election victory. We can, they're here, I know. And then uh, we were honored to be able to work with so many of you to make sure that Joyce Craig became the mayor of Manchester. She's pretty awesome. Yeah. In fact, everybody who has won an election who's in this room in 2017 or 2018, please stand up so we can give you a round of applause. So I'm excited to work arm in arm with all of you to make sure that we turn New Hampshire bright blue, and I deeply appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your fight, so thank you very much. Now, the Democrats have a lot of work to do across the country, which is why I've spoken at events like this in 38 states, from you know, Florida to, uh, to Utah, from Iowa to Nevada, to, from, I mean, I've been everywhere, honestly. <laughs> Every place in between. And what I've noticed is that even in this polarized time, there is more that brings our country together than there there is that pushes it apart. And the same is true for our party. We know America is changing, but the Republican sales pitch is this. It is change is bad. You should be afraid of change. Change is scary. And we, the Republican Party, can magically reverse change. We can protect you from it so that you don't have to be afraid anymore. But that is dead wrong about who we are as Americans. President Obama taught us that Americans are not meant to fear the future. Americans are meant to shape the future. And by the way, I'm not just talking about winning elections. I'm talking about uniting the country. So when the other side says that America is a dangerous neighborhood, so you've got to lock your doors and you've got to stay inside, what we're saying to folks is, no, come outside, join the neighborhood watch. Join this party that believes that we should care about people that we don't know. That's our rather radical idea, isn't it? We are, as Democrats, after all, we're here because we give a damn about people. That's why we're here. It's who we are. We shouldn't run from it. We should wear it on our sleeves. The other side says that that's bleeding heart liberal guilt. I say that is a sense of duty to one another and to our country. That's what it is. There are way too many Republicans who think that once you climb up the ladder and find success, that what you're supposed to do is pull that ladder up behind you. We're here tonight because we believe that once you have some success, you look around, you find more ladders, you lower them, you reach down, you bring the entire country up. That's what it is to be a Democrat. My, my grandpa is 94 years old, and uh, we all call him Pop. And about 60 years ago, Pop moved our family into a neighborhood in Kansas City that previously didn't allow Jews to live there. So our family was one of the first. And so Pop moves into this neighborhood, and all his neighbors ask him to become the Neighborhood Association president. So he says, all right. Hardest part of the job, he said, really the only part of the job, was coaching the neighborhood baseball team. He said, my dad and my uncle were on the team, and so the only hard part was they didn't really have a kid that could play shortstop, so he was always asking around about that. Other than that, really easy job. Later that summer, 
families from the neighborhood come to Pop, and they, they tell him that one of the families has moved out of the neighborhood, but they still own their home, and they've turned it into an unlicensed hotel. And they don't like that, right? Because they got kids playing in the yards, people coming and going they don't know. So they told Pop, who was not a lawyer, they said, you got to go to court, and you got to get this unlicensed hotel shut down. So Pop did. The day of the hearing, the lawyer for the folks who own this unlicensed hotel comes to Pop and threatens him and says, look, you can go forward with this if you want. If you do, you're probably going to win. But you should know my client has identified a black family and they're going to sell their home to that family and a black family is going to move into your neighborhood. Pop knew what his most important responsibility was as neighborhood association president. He looked this fellow right in the eye and he said, that's fine. Do you happen to know if that family has a kid that can play shortstop? Pop knew that you don't pull the ladder up behind you. You don't close off the the wall to your neighborhood. You make sure that folks can come in behind you. That's your responsibility. And growing up, that's what I learned from my folks. My dad was a a cop who later ran a security company, and he and my mom met while they were working together as juvenile probation officers. So as you can imagine, we got away with nothing at all uh, in my house. But what drove them was not a search for convenience or for money, what drove them was a sense of duty to their community, a love for their community. So when I saw the planes hit the Twin Towers on 9-11, I knew that I was going to join the Army. And that sense of duty that I learned from my parents is why I volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. And nearly every meal that I ate over there began with me offering a simple prayer that included me just giving thanks to God for the opportunity to serve my country. Because I knew what an awesome responsibility I had been entrusted with. And I've tried to continue in that approach throughout my time in public service. Every time that I have run for office, it has been because there was an office between me and getting something done. Whether it was trying to undo Medicaid cuts by running for state representative or or fighting for uh, voting rights just like I do now when I ran for Secretary of State in Missouri, or wanting a middle-class tax cut or to look out for my fellow veterans or to defend Obamacare so I ran for the United States Senate. Those were my reasons. But everybody in here has their own reasons, whether you are in elected office, whether you work with campaigns, or however you are involved. But as Democrats, we do have a guiding principle that unites all of us. And it's actually really simple. We believe that every American family should have a shot at the American dream. That is what we believe as Democrats. We think that no matter where you are, we know that no matter where you are in the country, whether it's your neighbors in New Hampshire, my neighbors in Missouri, we all really want the same thing. We want our kids' lives to be an upgrade over our own, and we'd really like it if our kids can live those lives near us. I want every American hometown to be a place where you can find success without having to move if you don't want to. And that's what we're about. Every, every issue that we're about is essentially about that. Wages and health care. Those are our issues because we believe that when you have more money in your pocket, you're going to spend it in your community to buy stuff or to pay for services, and companies in your community are going to hire people to provide services or to make stuff, and there's more opportunity and people don't need to leave. College affordability for us is about making sure that if kids do leave for opportunity, that they're not so steeped in debt that they can't afford to come home. And criminal justice reform is about making sure that our returning citizens have an opportunity to be a part of contributing to the safety of our community so that everybody feels it's a place where they can stay. That's what we're about at the end of the day, all of those issues. And I'm a progressive from a red state, so I know that these things sell. Don't tell me that they don't. 
I won in 2012 uh, when, on the same day that President Obama lost my state by almost 10. In 2016, I outperformed the top of the ticket by 16 points. I got 220,000 votes from folks who also voted for Donald Trump, even though I'm pretty sure the only thing he and I have in common is a fear of sharks. <laughs> so I know that when we have the courage to stand up for what we know is going to be the right thing for America, that voters reward us for it. Like I said, we care. That's who we are as Democrats. How did we ever allow anybody to convince us that that was somehow a weakness? Caring is not kryptonite. Caring is a superpower, and we should lean into it. Before I go, I just want to prove my point with one last story. When I was in Army Intelligence School, one of my instructors pulled me aside and gave me some advice, one Jewish soldier to another. He said, Jason, when you get over there, don't let your translators find out that you're Jewish, because if they do, they won't want to work with you. I didn't know any better, so I took this advice. So I get to Afghanistan, and I'm paired up with this fellow named Salam. Now, Salam, by pure coincidence, had family in Kansas City, where I'm from. So he considered Kansas City to be his hometown. And Salam and I became really close. We were in some dangerous places, surrounded by, you know, some shady characters at times. And we bonded. And I had never at that time had a Muslim friend that I was as close to as I was to Salam. And so I would ask him all sorts of questions about Islam, and he would answer me. And he never asked me about my religion. And they told me not to tell him, so I never did. And then a few days before I was getting ready to go home, I felt like, you know, we're close. I want to tell Salam that I'm Jewish. So we're sitting at his safe house, and we're eating leftovers, and I make kind of this big production of it, and I tell Salam that I'm Jewish. And Salam looks at me kind of funny, and he says, Jason, did you think I didn't know that? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, I never told you. And he says, back home in Kansas City, my sister cuts your grandmother's hair. <laughs> so we had a good laugh about it. And then Salam looked at me, a little more serious, a little, little bit hurt. And he asked me, he said, did you think I would care? And I was embarrassed, but I told him the story about intelligence school. And then Salam said something that I will never forget. He said, Jason, over here, we are just a couple of Americans who the bad guys would very much like to kill. I think about that all the time. Look, I say, let the politicians who have never done anything harder than a campaign let them be the ones who want to be a divisive force. Well, we bring Americans together around what it truly means to be American. We can be a unifying force. We have an opportunity in 2018 to take back the House, to take back the Senate. And then in 2020, we are going to have a chance to put a sense of courage back in the White House. It's not going to be easy. We all have a role to play. We're going to have to grab an oar. We're going to have to do our part. But as for me, I serve my country in Afghanistan. I am the first millennial in the country ever elected to a statewide office. And now I am fighting an un-American attack on our democracy. And I am proud to do it here in New Hampshire and across the country. We will not let them roll back the progress that President Obama and so many people before him made. We won't let it happen because we're patriots and because we understand that patriotism is not about making everybody stand and salute the flag. Patriotism is about making this a country where everybody wants to.
And we can be that country again. And in January of 2021, when we get a new president, we will be. Thank you. Thank you, New Hampshire. Thank you. Reality Check Live. Reality Check Live. Dot org.